Hello, I'm Liberty Erickson, and this is a Mewa podcast. The lecture, Invitation to the Divine, was recorded live Tuesday, October 4th, 2016, as part of the Mewa School of Textile lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. This episode features excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2019. There is also a short video that corresponds to Amy's lecture, which you can access on the podcast webpage. The lecture is introduced by Diana Sanderson and features Amy Potansu, who joins us from North Carolina. Amy is a full-time educator with Haywood Community College, and her work has won multiple awards and is showcased across the U.S. and Canada. Amy is most notably recognized for her work using a rare hand weaving technique called ondulé, a technique which allows the weaver to manipulate the threads, creating wave-like patterns. Growing up in coastal Maine, Amy has been surrounded by rocky shores and coastal waters. Her work is a reflection of the deep connection she has with her visual surroundings. Join us as Amy takes us through an exploration of the connections she has made, attempting to unlock some deeper human questions in their most minimalistic form, proving to be so simple, yet deeply powerful. Hi, everybody. Six years ago, Charlotte was receptive to an idea I had of collaborating with a silk weaving studio, hosting the young Californian Itajame artist, Angelina De Antonios. She was featured in a fashion show at the Sandbar, workshops with Myra, and an exhibition at the Silk Weaving Studio. The collaboration began. Since then, our many collaborations have been focused on textile artists based in Japan. This symposium, our collaboration comes full circle back to the United States with another young, talented artist, Amy Patanzu. Amy began as a painting student at Rhode Island School of Design, and within a year, she was captivated by and switched to textiles. To the right side, she came. <laughs> she graduated uh, the rigorous textile program in 1995 and quickly established herself as a studio weaver, selling through the prestigious American Craft Enterprises shows and shops such as the Santa Fe Weaving Gallery. In 2008, she accepted the position of Instructor of Fiber in Professional Crafts at Haywood College in North Carolina, taking over from Catherine Ellis. As a tribute to her teaching, many of her students have been HGA scholarship winners. Spending time with Amy over the last week has been very special, and I've been so impressed with her deep commitment as a teacher. She delves deeply into subjects and doesn't rest until she's achieved her goal. Amy's personal focus is ondulé, a very frustrating word to type because spellcheck always wants it to come out as nodule. It's very, <laughs> very frustrating. A fascinating weaving technique that is currently explored in depth only by a few. Amy generously shares her knowledge and ideas, and tonight we're on the receiving end of that gift. Please welcome one of the new generation of textile artists who inspires through her teaching and her exquisite weaving. Welcome, Amy. Thank you. We can lower the lights now too, I think. So I want to get everybody in the mood here.
thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I also want to thank Maiwa and Charlotte and Tim and everyone um, at Maiwa for this beautiful opportunity. I have enjoyed Vancouver so much. I am finding Vancouver to be a very, very inspiring place. The community is so conscious and caring. And I especially want to thank um, the Sandersons. Diana Sanderson for being my hostess. Uh, she's been so incredibly kind and generous. I could not ask for better care and hospitality. Thank you. So it's really been a pleasure to be here and I have uh, six more days to go. Okay, so um, I'm going to begin this presentation with a brief uh, history, very brief, and then I'm gonna go on to share my thoughts on inspiration. Um, I'm going to share more than just textiles, I want to warn you. I think it's good for us to look at work outside our own medium, you know, often. And then I'm going to finish with my more current body of work, um, which embodies uh, most of my recent ideas, which I think will be illustrated throughout the uh, slides of inspiration. So uh, briefly, uh, I was a self-employed um, full-time studio artist from 1998 to 2005, and this is the type of work that I made. My company was called Patansu Textiles. And when I was making that work, I was, and still am, very, very interested in materials. These textiles were about my interest in showcasing the inherent qualities of fibers and yarns, and that was really the focus of these fabrics. Uh, the weave structures are very, very simple. Um, the cuts, um, the sewing, very simple. Luxury natural fibers. And the garments uh, were uh, designed in such a way to showcase the beauty of the fabric. So less about patterning, more about the quality of fabric. Um, it was my goal to achieve um, a level of elegance through simplicity. Many of the examples I'm showing you are silk, um, including this shawl called Interlocking Wrap. And it was in 2002, and I think it was maybe even at an American Craft Council show, that I had the good fortune of meeting the curator for the Renwick uh, Museum at the Smithsonian, and they acquired this piece. And so um, that was a very proud moment for me. And I also thought it was very good news for hand weaving in general and art to wear, too. Okay, so in 2005, I closed Patansu Textiles and basically took three years off from weaving. And then in 2008, as Diana mentioned, I took over for Catherine Ellis, who retired at Haywood Community College. And now I teach a two-year program. It's called Professional Crafts Fiber. And I have very much enjoyed becoming a full-time teacher. But I do make uh, artwork on the side. I have continued my studio practice on my own and so the rest of the presentation is going to lead into the type of work that I'm doing now. I won't be talking a lot about technique but I'll be talking a lot about ideas and concept and kind of trying to answer the question you know, what what is it that I'm doing? What is it that I'm doing and why? And what is the role that I want my artwork to play in the world? Etc. So this quote I have pulled from the excellent book that I bet a lot of you are familiar with, um, Textiles, The Whole Story by Beverly Gordon. 
She dedicates an entire chapter in this book about the meanings and significance of cloth across cultures. And I isolated this quote in particular because I feel like it very well uh, summarizes precisely my intentions these days in creating my textile work um, and over the past few years. To use textiles to symbolize and further experience our most spiritual longings. So that seems like kind of a grandiose and hefty ambition, but that's what I'm after. So I have a hypothesis. I think that there is a connection between, and you bear with me, between spirituality, water, uh, art, cloth, and abstraction and minimalism. The video that I shared with you at the beginning, that I shot that with my iPhone in July on Clark Island Beach in Midcoast, Maine, and that's where I grew up. And so that very image and ones like it um, have really shaped my whole visual language. Okay, And also the culture that I grew up in, which was all about working waterfront and um, commercial fishing industry that my family was involved in. So that's important to know about me as we go forward. The piece of music that I shared, um, the composer's name is Dustin O'Halloran, and the piece is called Opus 28. And I shared that with you uh, for a reason, not only to set the mood, but um, I find that piece of music to be very moving and very evocative. I don't know if you found that to be true also. Um, and music has this ability to do that really easily, really automatically. But it's something that I wish for for um, my artwork, and I think we see it in other artwork that we know. Okay. So I'm gonna start by talking about the color white and plain white cloth, and that happens to be something that I love. And in Gordon's book, among other things, she talks about the significance of specifically plain white cloth I have a special affinity for plain white cloth, and I've got a story about when I was in college at Rhode Island School of Design. It was in my first textiles course. It was a fabric silkscreen class, and it was time to complete um, the final project. And so I went to the fabric store, and I bought yardage of beautiful silks, three types of silks, and I brought them home, and I thought There's, there is not hardly a single mark that I could make on this fabric to make it any better than it already is in its you know, complete simplicity. So that was kind of the moment when I knew I think I'm a minimalist. <laughs> so um, in terms of color theory, white is also interesting as a hue. So in the most practical sense, surfaces that appear to be white to us, they are in fact reflecting back to us all the hues of the spectrum. What's happening in our eyes is all three sets of cones are activated, therefore the surface appears to be white to us, or void of color. In psychological terms, white signifies purity and perfection, we're all familiar with, and yet on another level, I think there's an interesting metaphor here in that emptiness, okay, void of color, actually implies an infinite open space, an open space that allows for anything to appear or change. That emptiness symbolized by the color white is in fact an openness and therefore pure potential.
So this is going to be the nature of my presentation. It's going to be a string of thoughts and one thought inspiring next. And I'm really kind of, I'm actually sharing some, some fairly private and um, thoughts and how, how my mind works to arrive at my artwork. So Beverly Gordon references this particular book in her chapter, excellent book called Cloth That Does Not Die. And uh, chapter two is in fact titled Water, Spirits, and White Cloth. Okay, so here's some proof that my hypothesis may be true, okay? Um, in particular, she discusses the uh, West, uh, the Central Nigerian uh, group of Bunu Yoruba people and their specific reverence for plain white cloth. For example, um, a certain white cloth among the Yoruba is called Aso Ibora, and what that literally means is spirit cloth. And in this particular instance, what they're referring to um, are spirits who come from water and they, in fact, consider these spirits themselves to be the color white. In fact, they consider an entire segment of the spirit world to reside in the water. So plain white cloth is significant to the Yoruba on more levels than just that, including, quote, attracting beneficial spirits while repelling and reducing the effects of malevolent ones. Historically, uh, that type of cloth would be handwoven and there would be a great deal of ritual surrounding its very creation. Now I'm sharing with you an image of, um, of my own work. You can see it's white. And it actually combines the techniques that I'm sharing here at the Maiwa Symposium, um, both anjali weaving and uh, degumming of silk. So I've been investigating basically the, ins the expression of spirituality through the use of imagery from water and the sea because that, as I mentioned, is my visual vocabulary. And it's a language that feels really authentic to me. So I've been abstracting forms and distilling them down to the bare essentials, like a true minimalist. And in doing this in woven and dyed cloth form, I think it actually just adds to the fluidity, as does the um, transparency and opacity that I can achieve with the Angelet weaving technique and achieving the waving of threads. So according to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the word mizugoromo means literally water garment. And this costume would be worn in no theater, Japanese no theater, and it would be worn to signify uh, characters in the role of uh, suffering ghosts, or perhaps the destitute or the blind. The textile itself for this character role is always made um, with displaced threads. It's not exactly an angelate technique, but you can certainly see the relationship. It produces a distressed look to the cloth, and the breaking of the grid in this textile, I think, sets the character apart in a very identifiable way. Now we're gonna look at some painting. I adore the paintings and also the wisdom uh, shared by painter Agnes Martin. Uh, Agnes Martin is a Canadian, I bet many of you know, and she has been described as one of the most important painters of the 20th century post-war period. Martin believed that art is about the intuitive and not the intellectual. What she said about her own work is that it, quote, is about what is known forever in the mind, unquote. 
And what she was talking about is specifically things like perfection and the transcendent reality spoken of in Eastern religions. So in the biography on Agnes Martin, written by Nancy Prinsenthal in 2015, the author reflects on Agnes Martin's use of gold, um, particularly in this painting titled Friendship. Prinsenthal explains that, quote, gold is also a symbol of transcendence in many cultures. It is central to Greek Orthodox icons and pre-Renaissance Western Christian imagery as well. And any of these connections may have been in Martin's mind at the time. And then the author goes on to mention that the luster of the painting Friendship evokes the gold of saris and of shantung silk. So over and over again, I feel like we see connections with cloth, spirituality, and I'm bringing up the use of metallics because that's also a favorite effect of mine and has been throughout the years, including metallic um, and sparkle. So the experience that Agnes Martin said she wanted from a painting is, quote, the simple, direct, going into a field of vision as you would cross an empty beach to look at the ocean. Agnes Martin was included in an exhibition at the Drawing Center in New York City in 2015, no, excuse me, 2005. And this exhibition showed three female artists, each of whom approached abstraction as a means of structuring philosophical, scientific, and transcendental ideas. One of the artists in the show was named Emma Kuntz. Emma Kuntz was not formally trained as an artist, and she was considered um, an outsider artist. But she was described as being a healer, in fact, and she had published many books on the subject, as well as many drawings. Emma Kuntz happens to have been born in Switzerland to a family of weavers. All of the artists in this show uh, use line, grids, and geometry intended to explore their complex belief systems or their restorative practices. So going off on a little bit of a tangent here, I have to share with you uh, this object. When I was looking at the work of Emma Kuntz, her drawings immediately reminded me of these objects. These objects interest me very much because of many reasons. Their exceptional simplicity, obviously their relationship to weaving, but also their function. So this is called a stick chart. And a stick chart is a nautical navigational tool used by the inhabitants of the Marshall Islands and throughout Micronesia. They are made from palm fronds. They're lashed together, and sometimes they include um, tiny shells to mark the location of islands. The stick chart is, in fact, a record of ocean swells or wave patterns. And they're used by islanders to navigate their outrigger canoes between all the thousands of islands. Uh, I feel like this is an object of such refinement and beauty. It's obviously related to weaving, as I mentioned, and then also to the sea. So this, an object like this, really embodies sort of all, m most of my interests all in one. But back to Agnes Martin's work. So Agnes Martin's work is often revered by weavers. I would bet that there are some in the audience who love Agnes Martin's work as much as I do. And I think we love her work not only for her use of the grid and bands and stripes, but also the visual texture that she achieved. Uh, Martin coated her canvases with multiple layers of very, very thin 
layers of gesso, intentionally so that the texture of the canvas would show through. So I would argue that actually Agnes Martin was a master craftsman. In terms of her process, her paintings were entirely orchestrated and pre-planned, and they came to her in the form of visions during periods when she could let her mind be completely void of thoughts. And that state was very important to her, and she called this her inspiration. In terms of being a craftsman, the paintings could have no flaws. And uh, Arnie Glimcher, who is the owner of Pace Gallery and represented Martin's work for the second half of her career and was her friend, he talks about Agnes Martin destroyed a large percentage of her paintings if, they were, if there were any flaws whatsoever. For example, if paint pooled in a way that just wasn't right, she would destroy the canvas and start all over again. And that's very craftsmanlike to me. So Agnes Martin had uh, an important relationship with Lenore Tawney during the 1950s when they both lived in New York City. Lenore Tawney is described as being one of the few weavers who was very involved with painters. So, and Diana mentioned my interest in painting, and so I'm sure it's all making sense to you now why I'm talking about painting so much. And it, painting certainly does influence my approach to making cloth now. The Smithsonian Institution, Institution describes the work of Lenore Tawney as containing elusive messages about the frail and transience nature, transient nature of life and the need to find inner peace. Tawney was long attracted to mystical religious philosophies from both the East and the West, and she has imbued all of her work with a deeply felt spiritual content. In her work, she encourages an attitude of communion, communion and contemplation. The circle within a square was a very common format that she practiced over and over again in both her weaving and her collage. Minimalist art is defined as being made with extreme economy of means and reduced to the very essentials. This is a detail of a painting by Mark Rothko. Mark Rothko's work transcends both time and space. And he was very clear about the spiritual experience of encountering his color field paintings, which was his mature body of work. The work is intended to encourage the viewer into deep contemplation and spiritual communion. And he certainly achieves this with his use of color to, quote, express invisible states of mind. And Rothko has said himself that he is, quote, interested only in expressing basic human emotions, tragedy, ecstasy, doom, and so on. The Rothko Chapel in Houston, Texas, is an interfaith sanctuary, and it was commissioned as a private commission that Rothko enthusiastically accepted. Uh, he designed the space, which is octagonal, as well as the 14 panels inside. And this chapel is considered to be his most important artistic statement. The light for the space uh, comes through a cupola in the ceiling that's veiled with a fine cloth, uh, creates a meditative stillness within the space. The chapel paintings are described as getting a glimpse of the divine. And Dominique de Menil, who was what commissioned the chapel, was the patron. 
She has said about um, the chapel, quote, we are cluttered with images and only abstract art can bring us to the threshold of the divine. So I think I am starting to build a case for <laughs> uh, art's role in contemplation and communing with spirituality. I'm very inspired by these artists and their desire and their success in creating opportunities for transcendence and contemplation with their artwork. And that is definitely something that I'm striving for. I do feel like I'm at the very beginning of my work. But I feel like cloth as a medium is particularly effective in influencing environments, more, maybe more so than painting. I would argue more so than the other craft media. Because cloth has a natural fluidity, as we all know, its tactility, its ability to be transparent and opaque, and cloth can obtain almost any weight and physical character. So now I'm going to talk about my own work, my, my recent pieces, and hopefully it will all become clear, the ideas that I've been talking about and illustrating through the other art and objects. So all of the ideas that I've talked about are central ideas motivating my most recent work. This is an example, it's titled Horizon. And for me, as I shared in the opening video, um, the horizon line um, is an important image to me. At times I've called it a sacred image, my sacred image. Uh, interesting um, in terms of, of language, the specific space in the far distance where the, the sky meets the ocean and that space that's beyond uh, anchoring ground is called the offing. The offing is an interesting term, I think. It can also mean the foreseeable future. And more about the horizon. So in terms of celestial navigation, the horizon can be considered an illusion of stability. So I find that to be sort of an interesting idea to ponder. On another level, that notion, stability, uh, illusion of stability, is a metaphor to me for the notion of impermanence in the self. Ideas like the self is actually a construct and that all things are impermanent. This diptych is called deserve. After the making of it, I then realized the circle and the square relationship and felt like, oh, this is an homage to Lenore Tawney. But what it was really about at the time, um, and the reason for its title, is I was contemplating what I think is a complicated notion of being deserving, this idea of deserving things. I find it to be confusing. And when I was really, really deeply contemplating that notion, this was a bit of a vision that came to me, sort of the pinpoint uh, within uh, a radiating, radiating bands. And I've used gold leaf in these pieces, uh, and it's not the first time I've been, as I mentioned, including gold and sparkle in my work for a long time. There are a lot of techniques included in these pieces. Shibori, you can see hand-woven cloth, it's dyed in indigo. This is another recent piece, and I think one of, the most, one of my most successful ever. It's called Beacon. And this piece actually started off as a vision also. So 
this was during a um, pretty intense healing period in my life. And again, you know, during highly contemplative moments, this vision came to me. And it's the closest that I've ever come to fully executing a vision as its original, you know, as it originally came to me. The title Beacon didn't come until after the making either. And for me, uh, it's very much about um, the beacon that a lighthouse would uh, shine. So tying it back to my sort of nautical seaside roots. Uh, it is a handwoven fabric. There's dyeing. There's a process called melt-off. It's undulate. This piece is titled Adrift. I think that the suggestion, the, the, the marine or nautical suggestion is pretty obvious with a drift. But on another level, this could be about the notion of clinging and attachment, how well that works and how well that doesn't work. This piece titled Nostalgia actually came before all of the others that I've shown you so far. And it's, I've been living in the mountains for the past eight plus years, very, very far from the ocean. So I've been experiencing a lot of homesickness. And this piece, frankly, was just a real expression of that. Um, what's tucked inside the double weave, um, the two layers of fabric, are pieces of sea glass that I collected in Maine. One side is painted gold. And each piece of sea glass is wrapped with um, black silk thread. So everyone is familiar with the, the role that the moon plays in the shifting of the tides. And so that's beautiful and fascinating. But of course, so is just the very image of a lunar chart. So that's what cycle is all about. And there, I have in fact um, count, I've done some math here, and there are counted threads that are painted. And the whole piece is a representation of the of one full cycle of the moon. And this is a large piece, uh, diptych. The, it's 80 inches wide, um, both panels together, 58 high. It was acquired by the National um, China National Silk Museum last year. And frankly, this one isn't about anything other than being beautiful. <laughs> and I, you know what? I think that's enough sometimes. And actually, I'm going to close by um, reading a little paraphrased excerpt from a book titled The Hidden Power, published in 1921 by Thomas Troward. This excerpt comes from a chapter titled The Spirit of Opulence and Beauty. And the premise of the chapter is basically the, the realization of our own innate power, which is unlimited, and also the critical role of beauty in serving our own destiny. We are too apt to regard beauty as merely a superficial thing, and we do not realize all that it implies. This was not the case with the great thinkers of the ancient world. For example, Plato describes beauty as the expression of all that is highest and greatest in the system of the universe. The idea of beauty appealed to these great minds as the most perfect outward expression of all that lies deepest in the fundamental laws of being. It is the glorious overflowing of love's fullness and indicates the presence of infinite reserves of power behind it. Beauty is the index to the whole nature of being. 
It is the brightness of glory spreading itself over the sanctuary of the divine spirit. Beauty is the province of the artist and the poet and lays hold of our emotions and appeals directly to the innermost feelings of our heart. Thank you. I would be happy to answer questions or take comments or... <laughs> Good question. Um, Anjali weaving is, is the technique that I practice. I've focused on it only for the past 10 plus years or so. Essentially, uh, traditional weaving is, of course, 90 degree grid, threads at a strict grid. But Anjali weaving breaks that grid. And through, with use of a special tool and um, manipulating that tool, we are able to maneuver and coax the thread into waving, undulating paths throughout the cloth, okay? So we get a look that's like this on the surface, and it's actually structural. Mm -hmm. Yes, the special tool is a reed. Um, it's an undulate reed, sometimes called a fan reed, or Yoroke reed. So having the reed, which has um, dents set at fanning angles, alternating, it also has to be manipulated during the weaving, basically hitting the fell line at the bottom of the reed, the middle of the reed, and the top, and down again in order to coax the threads this way and that. And uh, yesterday's seminar in the loft was on that subject. So I'm enjoying using undulate. Not only the structural challenge has been, of course, very engaging, but I, I do love how it um, so very well captures what I'm really after with this whole you know, expression of fluidity and the ocean, et cetera. So it, it actually matches my vision very well. Hi, uh, Amy, I was curious about um, the history of this technique. Like in your research, like the, you showed us the Japanese costumes, which are quite beautiful and evocative. And I'm just wondering if you, if there are other kind of connections back to this type of, maybe not strictly the way you do it, but this whole idea of distorting mm -hmm. the cloth. You know, I haven't, I have not researched the the larger subject that that you are asking about but i have spent a lot of time trying to research specifically warp on gelée and the specific technique that i practice and it has been a difficult subject to research there's very little published on the subject and there are very few examples in museums or collections anywhere and you know i could, I can speculate on reasons why that is. We do know, we know that it was industrially produced um, at least at the turn of the century because we've seen um, entries in uh, industry journals, technical journals, of the technique and how it was achieved on industrial looms. And then of course it's more common in Japan. Examples would, are easier to find in Japan, it is my understanding. Uh, but I know, I know very little, and um, I think others who have attempted to research the subject have, have 
had the same kind of difficulty. How did I learn to do it? Uh, I figured it out myself. Yeah, truly. And so when I finally found a source for the read, which took a long time, uh, I was faced with how, how, do I, how do I maneuver this thing? How do I use it? And literally had to make this up myself. I really, I had to invent a way to use it on my loom. And what, I've, what I have learned in my research since then, um, and my research included interviewing other contemporary Angelay weavers. Um, there aren't many, but they're kind of scattered around. And I interviewed three European weavers. And that was, you know, the first or second question. How did you, how did you figure it out? And they also invented a way to maneuver it themselves. So I think what that's very interesting about this technique is that individually, people, you know, all over, not necessarily connected, are just inventing and being innovative and figuring it out. There is a book coming out in 2017 um, on Anjali weaving. It, um, it's, not, it's going to be less of a how-to book. It, it, I am not the author, but I have contributed a chapter. And I think it's less of a how-to book um, and more of sort of a, just a showcasing of, of textiles. What's interesting about it is it's absolutely loom-specific. Are you a weaver? Yeah. So the solution, ha you ha must consider your very loom, the make and model, and maybe even how you use it yourself, um, that informs how to maneuver the tool at all. So it's, it's pretty hard to you know, give one answer on how to, if that makes any sense. <laughs> thank you so much, Amy, for coming and sharing your story. Yeah, thank it's you. fantastic having you. Thank you. <laughs> you have been listening to a Mewa podcast. The lecture, Invitation to the Divine, was recorded live Tuesday, October 4th, 2016, as part of the Maywa School of Textiles lecture series held in Vancouver, Canada. The lecture is introduced by Diana Sanderson and features Amy Patatsu. The podcast you have just heard consists of excerpts from the lecture and was first posted in 2019. For this podcast, we have also uploaded a short video that was included in Amy's talk. You can access this extra content and the rest of the Maywa podcast on the Maywa School of Textiles website at schooloftextiles.com. That's schooloftextiles, all one word, dot com. For more information about Maywa and all that we do, please visit our website at maywa.com. That's M-A-I-W-A dot com. I'm Liberty Erickson, 